Hey, this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of FE Church, and this is our podcast. Silence is uncomfortable. For some of us, anyway. For some, it's a handy hiding place. The neutral zone in a war that is begging for you to pick a side. If they don't notice me, if I don't speak, I'll be safe, right? But oftentimes it's just, it's not that simple. And we don't like that because because simple is good. Simple is easy. Simple is understandable. And so we look for ways to categorize people, to put them in this box or that box. We look for political parties, races, genders, religions, sports team. Are you a dog person or a cat person? This or that. But what if it's just not that simple? We boil intricate ideologies down to three little words that will fit on a bumper sticker. And we challenge everyone who does not agree. And so we boil them down too. Terrible person, ignorant, immoral. But what if it's just not that simple? What if instead we resist picking sides? What if we focus on something else? Someone else? What if all along we've been asking the wrong question? Silence is complicity. It's where I've wanted to go this entire series. We are on the fifth week of this silence series. And silence is complicity is a really nice sounding slogan. But what if it's just not that simple? What if it matters not only that you have the right thing to say, but when you say it? who you say it to, how you say it. What if you have to be in the right place, spiritually, emotionally, to say it? This whole series, God has taken us down some healing roads, good roads, restful roads, also some challenging, right? It's been challenging. We learned a lot But so far, we haven't learned what I set out to learn. Anyone else ever go to the Bible looking for for very specific answers and instead get answers to questions you didn't ask? (laughs) Happens to me all the time. It's, It's amazing how God answers the question that you should have asked, not the one that you actually asked. And I think I set out to give answers to a very specific cultural question, something that culture is screaming at us right now. And instead what I found was that maybe we're not actually in the right place to be saying that much of anything. I wanted to address our culture. God wanted to address me. Jesus does this in Luke 20. He actually answers a question they weren't really asking and instead poses one of his own. And and this is a, a situation where, again, we find people wanting to trap Jesus. That seems to be a common theme throughout this series. They want to trap him into saying something that would get him in trouble. And so the Sadducees... 
a group of people who do not believe in, in life after death, at least not quite like the Pharisees did. They asked him about a very specific piece of Old Testament law and how it related to the afterlife. They were hoping to get him to say something very controversial, get him in trouble with the crowd, in trouble with the religious leaders. And Jesus basically tells them that they're asking the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question. And he gives proof that they're asking the wrong question. And then no one dares to ask him anymore. It's like the crowd goes silent. They're like, okay, messing around with the wrong guy here. It's like Jesus is the literal embodiment of Proverbs 15 where it says a wise answer turns away wrath. It dissipates completely. And the crowd goes silent. But then Jesus takes it a step further. And I gotta say, I just love this about Jesus. I mean, he could have stopped there. (laughs) He could have let it go. He could have let the whole thing die and everybody sort of put their hackles down and just take a deep breath. But instead, he poses a question of his own. I just want to read this to you because it's just the weirdest little piece of scripture ever. Luke 20 Verse 41, then Jesus presented them with a question. Why is it, he asked, that the Messiah is said to be the son of David? For David himself wrote in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. Since David called the Messiah Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? I know, it's a weird piece of scripture. It's like a really odd place to preach from today, but just hear me out, okay? Uh, the, the Sadducees were asking about marriage and, and life after death, right? They were trying to trap Jesus. And Jesus proves in front of everyone that they're asking the wrong question. He silences them with wisdom. And instead of letting it go, content to just let himself be off the hook, you know, out of hot water, at peace, With everyone, he pushes the issue. But not just to cause them anger, not just to prove that he's right and they're wrong, but hear this, to push them toward belief in the Messiah, to change their perspective on the Messiah that they thought they knew was coming into the one they actually had. If you can get this today, so powerful. Because I struggle with this. Listen, I am a peacemaker at heart. I want everyone on the same page, moving toward the same goal, and and I want everybody happy about it. Right? (laughs) Assuming the best of each other, giving each other the benefit of a doubt. Sure, shoving things under the rug occasionally when they need to be. Like, I just, I'm a peacemaker at heart, right or wrong. That is, that's a personality thing for me. I I just prefer that everybody just get along. And and to me, there's a higher goal of being right, and that is peace. I know some of you are the opposite, and that's okay too. Personality things, we're we're all different, right? You don't care so much about peace, you just want to be right. And you would rather everybody know that, Right? (laughs) We're different. But what Jesus shows me here is that there's a higher goal than just being right. And there is a higher goal than peace. Can you see that here? The higher goal is Jesus. Seeing the Messiah. And what I saw in this particular passage, this passage that on the surface doesn't seem like it would have anything to do with our current sermon series of silence, it's a bigger picture of how Jesus tackled issues, both religious and political issues. Anyone else see where I'm going with this yet? I know the point isn't just lying around on the surface. You got to dig for this one a little bit. Let me just give you a few more pieces you need to figure out where I'm going with this. Because maybe, maybe we have to put ourselves in the mindset of the first century Jew a little bit. 
We couldn't be further from it in 2020 America, okay? Just night and day, everything is different. The way that we think is different. And so it can be really difficult to see and to feel what they saw and and felt from Jesus. I've been saying throughout this entire series that there were four parties at the time of Jesus. I've been researching this for a month now, this whole series. Politically, there are four parties, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, which are also called the scribes in a lot of places, and the zealots, okay? Four different political and religious parties in the Jewish culture at the time of Jesus. These are very broad terms because likely there are actually many, many more factions and, and sections of each of these. But broad strokes for simplicity, these four. Okay, let me just tell you a little bit about them. The Sadducees were mostly made up of aristocrats sort of rich guys who dealt with, with the government, uh, and they compromised with the Romans. If you know anything about this culture, the Romans were occupying Jerusalem, okay? They were the invaders, but they stayed. Nobody liked Rome. None of the Jews who lived in Jerusalem liked Rome. But these four parties, they could agree on not liking Rome, but not on how to handle it, okay? The Sadducees compromised with them. They were rich, they were powerful, they wanted to hold on to as much government power as they could, and so they compromised. The Pharisees were mostly made up of idealists. They get a bad rap in the gospel. Like We call each other Pharisee right now as an insult because of these guys, right? You wouldn't think they're good guys, but actually they were idealists in Jewish culture. They mostly genuinely good people. They believed the law of Moses, and they wanted to keep it pure, They followed the law to the letter and wanted to hang on to as much purity in their religion as possible. And so sometimes that was just legalistic, right? But that's the Pharisees. Mostly good people, idealists about the law, not really into compromising any part of it. Then we have the Zealots who believe that Rome should not be governing them in any way, shape, or form, and that submission to them was against everything God wanted for them. And so they needed to rise up and overthrow at any cost, any cost, even violent ones. In fact, they advocated for violent overthrow of Rome. These were the zealots. Sadducees, Pharisees, zealots. Are you tracking with me so far? And number four is the Essenes, or the scribes. The Essenes opted out of all of it, just withdrew. I mean, think monks, right? Withdrew to the mountains. They wanted nothing to do with any of it. None of Rome's society whatsoever. They didn't want to pay taxes, didn't want to participate. They basically, they went in the woods and sang kumbaya, okay? They didn't, this is the Essenes, not to be in society if it meant submitting to the Romans. You see the differences. Nobody likes Rome, but four different ways of handling how to submit or not submit to the Roman government. These were all political groups of people, not just religious ones, and we can't It's really hard for us to see that when we're reading scripture, right? We tend to think of them as religious groups and Jesus calling them out. But remember, for Jews, the law, their law from God, the law of Moses was everything. It was not just law for their religion. It was law for everything, government, life, everything. God was their king for a long time in their history. They were the ones who messed that up. They asked for a human king, and that's where we see Saul and David and everything that happened after. But God was their actual king for a long time. But they messed it up. They asked for a king, and and here comes Rome. About 100 years before Jesus ends his ministry, Rome takes over. Not just their their law, but their lifestyle, their religion, their politics, everything. You can see how much this disrupted everything for them. And, And all Jews agreed they shouldn't be there, but they disagreed on how to handle it. But they knew the Old Testament very well. They lived their life by it, all of them. They were actually way more biblically literate than we are today. They knew the word. They knew the Old Testament. And they knew the prophecies about the Messiah. The Messiah, to them, wasn't just about religion. Because it was all in one the same. Life 
was religion. Religion was life. The Messiah was a political term to them. We hear religious. We hear Jesus, right? They didn't hear that. Just put yourself in that, this perspective for a little bit just to understand what's actually happening here. Messiah, to the crowd that Jesus was talking to, meant a new ruler, a new king, a physical king. It meant an overthrow of Rome. It meant revolution, a new day. And so you can imagine when Jesus says the word Messiah, people listen. They, their ears prickle a little bit, right? They go silent. The crowd goes silent because Jesus, who's gaining a following by this point, said the word Messiah. Can you hear this? They felt it when they, he said the word. Pulses rise a little bit. They want to watch the religious leaders closer because they know. Oh, they know how dangerous those religious leaders can be. How much power they have and do not want to let go of. The religious leaders are corrupt and power hungry and everyone knows it. And so... You can imagine when Jesus says Messiah, you can imagine when Jesus says the word kingdom, people listen. Again, we, 2,000 years later, know that when he said kingdom of God, he meant spiritual kingdom, big, big picture. They didn't know, they couldn't see it, they couldn't feel it. When he said kingdom, they thought he meant physical kingdom. It was a political term, not just a religious one. The kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, the kingdom of God. They heard one and the same thing. People listening would have 100% believed that Jesus was referring to a physical kingdom. We now know that Jesus was referring to a spiritual Messiah for all people and all times, all places. A spiritual kingdom of God, not a physical one, but they didn't know. And so no matter how many times he tried telling them, they weren't getting it. Even the disciples along the way, you hear them say things like, you really are the son of God. Like two years in, you're still, that's still dawning on you. But they, this was the context they live in. This is why it was so hard for them to understand. They had so much to unlearn. So much to unlearn. They were so focused on the here and now. And it's not bad to focus on the here and now. Okay, let me, let me just say that before we get too far into this, because as long as it's not your only focus, the here and now is not a bad thing to focus on. I believe as Christians, we can work for, for social justice, racial justice. We can work toward the end of human slavery and trafficking, clean water across the world. We can fight for the rights of women and children and, and the underprivileged, and we can focus on all of that. I actually believe we should but it's only one of the five missions of the church. Not all of it. We can't get our eyes off the other missions, which just, if you're curious, worship, fellowship, discipleship, service, and outreach. Missions that Jesus gave to the church. We should also never lose sight that we are not just citizens of the here and now. We're also citizens of heaven dual citizenship, not just one or the other. With that in mind, let me go back to Jesus' question. Okay, I know I'm taking some rabbit trails here. Luke 20, verse 41. Then Jesus presented them with a question. Why is it, he asked, that the Messiah is said to be the son of David? It makes even less sense now, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm getting further from the point. Listen, I love Jesus for this. Once you understand it, I hope that you will too. He so perfectly pairs the practical and the spiritual here at the same time. And he's trying to get them to see it in a language that they can understand. Listen, this is not the way other religions are throughout the world. Let me just point that out here. Hinduism, for example... Right? Literally, the highest goal of Hinduism is called moksha. 
It's the ultimate spiritual goal of the entire religion. And the goal is to reach a point where you detach yourself from feelings and perceptions that tie you to the world. It's to detach from physical, detach from the here and now, to get so spiritual you get lost in it. This is other religions throughout the world. This is not Christianity. We are not just spiritual. The goal is not to detach, but to go into the world. We're different. When people want to lump us all together with all the other religions around the world, we're fundamentally different. This is why Christians to the world seem like we're judging everybody else. We're not. We're just, it's different. Fundamentally, at its most core, we are different. I was reminded this week just how practical the Jewish faith of the Old Testament was. You know, there's a verse in the Old Testament. There's actually lots of verses that are only about purpose and not about spirit at all. The purpose of this one verse literally is crowd control in and out of the temple. (laughs) Like from God, crowd control. Like he cares how people come into the sanctuary and how they leave. Do you feel like that's a detail God would like spend time on usually? And yet he does. It had nothing, no spiritual element to it, just crowd control. And here Jesus He's saying, look, you're asking the wrong question. Here's a question. Why is it that the Messiah is said to be the son of David? He doesn't even answer the question. It's a rhetorical question. (laughs) Jesus asked them a rhetorical question to help them refocus on him. But they couldn't even see that it was him at the time. He's refocusing them on the Messiah. And he didn't even answer the question. His goal in that moment wasn't to prove himself right or to fully explain an idea, but to pose a question that they would have to think about. I now believe, after tormenting myself with this question for days, (coughs) I think his goal in that moment was twofold. I think he first wanted to refocus the minds of those prideful religious leaders who were trying to trap him, who thought they knew everything to the real Messiah. He was trying to get them to see they didn't have it all figured out and they were looking for the wrong person. And secondly, I believe he was trying to show the average person, the average crowd member, listening to his speech that day, that they don't have to be beat up by religion anymore, that maybe, just maybe, they're actually closer to the kingdom than those prideful religious leaders wanted them to believe. And isn't that his message to us today, too? You're closer than you think. Jesus is closer than you think. You don't have to jump through all the prideful religious hoops to get there. It's just there. Listen, a lot of us Christians, right now, we're too focused on the here and now. We're not seeing the full picture clearly. Like the Jews of the time, we have a nationalized religion. We're too focused on today. We can't see the eternity through the fog and the noise of everything going on with culture. Right now, Jesus is trying to get us to see that we're citizens of heaven, not just earth. That first and most importantly, we're citizens of eternity. But that doesn't mean that we are pie in the sky, super spiritual, out of touch with reality people either. Jesus wasn't. He was down to earth. And it must be both. Pentecostals can be weird sometimes, y'all. That's us, just in case you were wondering. We're weird sometimes, right? We get spiritual and spooky and weird, and I think we forget that the gifts of the Spirit were given so that we could accomplish the mission. They were given for a purpose, 
Not just for us to be spooky and spiritual, but so that we can go into the world, be down to earth with them, and still show them Jesus. Instead, we end up worshiping the gifts sometimes, not the God who gave the gifts. The job is to go into a broken, hurting world. Jesus didn't spend all his time in the temple. I've always wanted to to go through the Gospels and count how many times he taught in the temple compared to how many times he taught outside of it. There's a lot on both sides. He wasn't just in the temple. He went out to the people. He spent time in the parties that the religious leaders looked down their noses on. He did it with the gifts of the Holy Spirit went into those places. He he lived among the people. He enjoyed people. His first miracle was providing wine at a wedding where everybody was already drunk. As a down-to-earth Messiah, I love him for that. He solved a practical problem with his very first spiritual miracle. He loved people. He enjoyed them. He he hung out with them. He even looked like them. The religious leaders in the end, they had to pay somebody to point him out. He wasn't walking around with a big prayer hat and the chains they wore around their neck with prayer stuff, robes and whatnot, like the Pharisees of the time. He looked like a person. Jesus wasn't weird. John the Baptist was weird. (laughs) He ate locusts and, you know, he was weird. And that was his specific calling. Jesus wasn't weird. Look, the message cannot change, but the methods do. From generation to generation. Jesus related to generations, by the way. He called this generation a brood of vipers once. He related to people in generations. I get so frustrated sometimes with People criticizing the church for being relevant. As long as the message doesn't change, what's the problem if if the methods do? Things change from generation to generation. If the younger generation is passionate enough to give creative expression to their love for God, what does it matter if we sing hymns or Hillsong songs? What does it matter if there's stained glass windows or lights that look like stained glass windows? We have six today. I counted the amount of teenagers on the behind the scenes teams around here. Six this morning. I think that's over half. Teenagers want to be here. They were here at 7 a.m. this morning preparing for you all, serving you all. They want to be here and learn and give creative expression to their love for God. (sighs) Who cares? If the message isn't changing, we should be relevant. The methods are going to change from generation to generation. The message doesn't change. The gospel does not change but the methods can. The kingdom of God is not usually this or that. It's this and that. It is both. We are the ones who want to categorize it. It's only this or it's only this. It only looks like hymns and, and stained glass windows. It can't look like this. That's just not what I see of Jesus. Our our culture has a hard time understanding this concept. They they don't understand, for example, how we can hate the sin but love the sinner. That doesn't make sense. How we can both love truth and love mercy at the same time. We want to boil everything down to what can fit on a bumper sticker. It's just not that simple. It's not meant to be. Even in in church, we do this. Within church, we oversimplify things. We we want to pit the spiritual and the practical against each other a lot of times. Let's just stop. (laughs) Let's use them together like Jesus did. It's not a problem to solve. It's a tension to manage. It must be both spiritual and practical together. I, I honestly think the church of my youth put way too much emphasis on the spiritual 
and forgot the practical. And I think today we might be in danger of doing the opposite. So much practical, not quite enough spiritual. We must hold on to both. Jesus did. When asked what the greatest commandment is, what was his answer? Love God, spiritual, and love people, physical, practical. Love God is the eternal mindset. It's understanding who he is. It's what we did in worship a little bit ago, opening up our understanding of how big and amazing he is. But the second is just as important, love people. And that is here and now that is practical. Our eternal perspective of God must drive the physical mindset. Our practical mindset must then turn us back toward heaven. It's cyclical. It's both. Cannot be one or the other. Do you see how they work together? This is Christianity. It's both. And it's the very essence of our silent sermon series that I don't think I saw this clearly before. Everything we've been learning for a month now comes to this idea. Jesus held them both. He saw the eternal and he saw what was right in front of him. And that idea alone changed the world. It changed everything. It was radical, transformational, and powerful. When he encountered someone to focus on the here and now, like the Pharisees, for example, he refocused them to the eternal. When he encountered someone too focused on the eternal, like the zealots, he refocused them to the here and now. Right? You'll see this now if you read back through. The, to the zealots, he said, love your enemies. What did they want to do to their enemies? Kill them violently, if possible. He said, love them. To the Sadducees, he said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what's God's. They wanted it all together. He said, let it be separate. To the, uh, about the Pharisees, actually. He said, obey everything they teach you, but don't do as they do. After all, they say one thing and do something else. Look, knowing all of this, I feel like I have to go back and read through the entire Gospels, all four books, all over again, and watch not only what Jesus says, but who he's saying it to. Now, I have to laugh a little when I picture these groups of people watching Jesus talk. <laughs> Like, they must have been on the edge of their seats the whole time. Like, oh, he agrees with us. Nope. No, wait. Maybe not. Oh, there. That's with us. Nope. No. He's way off now. (laughs) Like, they must have been so confused all of the time. Sometimes he seems to agree with one ideology or another, and then he turns around and rebukes them. I need to reread everything with this in mind and just really watch Jesus balance the practical, and the spiritual with everything he says and does. I mean, just just think about the Lord's Prayer for a second. Jesus was asked how to pray. He's talking to the disciples at this point, and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. I mean, they've seen him pray. Lord, teach us. You do it differently, (laughs) right? And what does he say? Our Father, which art in heaven, and this is King James, but it's still, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I mean, it's very spiritual sounding, isn't it? Big and God and hallowed be thy name. But then what does he switch to? Give us today our daily bread. It's not even like, God, give us abundance and more than we can handle and the riches and the whatever. It's give us today what we need today. Bread. Practical, so practical. He goes back and forth. Hallowed be thy name. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us as we also forgive others. Practical, again, but also spiritual. I mean, he's, he's both practical and spiritual. He didn't just give people spiritual food, but physical too. He fed the 5,000 with actual bread. He is both spiritual and physical. And that is the meaning of his question to the Sadducees. I know I took a long road to get there, but can you see it now? They were expecting a very spiritual king. Someone that floats down on the clouds riding horses of fire or something. 
They were expecting a spiritual king to come and save them. They couldn't see that he would be the son of David. They focused on the Lord part, but not the son part. Why is it that the Messiah is said to be the son of David? Jesus was both son and Lord. Can you see this now? Physical and spiritual. They didn't expect the son of Joseph the carpenter who lived down the road from Nazareth. They they couldn't see. He was the son of David, born in a manger, in a barn, for goodness sake. And they missed him. He was right in front of them. And they missed him. They were looking for a spiritual person to become a physical king. And what they got was a physical person becoming a spiritual king. The kingdom that Jesus was talking about wasn't either or. It is both. It is here and now. And it is eternity. It is bringing the kingdom of heaven here on earth, transcending every human kingdom, existing in the midst of it. It is both. We are citizens of heaven first, yes, but we are citizens of now. Love God and love people. That's the job. Jesus not only said this, he modeled this. And when you look at the whole of the Gospels through this lens, you see a couple of things that I think directly apply to us today, but they are thinkers, I'm going to warn you. I'm not going to unpack them all today. I'm just going to hit you with these three things real quick (laughs) and let you unpack them later. Go to fe.church slash sermon notes or go on your app to find these. You may have to sit with them for a while. You may have to read through the stories again to see them properly. I'm going to throw these at you. Number one, you see that Jesus's silence in strategic moments made him complicit in his own injustice for the sake of you and I. I've been sitting with this one all month. He was silent in strategic moments. He walked himself to that cross, his own injustice. He caused it. He was complicit in it. Does, Does that mean we shouldn't stand up for injustice? No. But it should confront your sense of comfort a little bit. Maybe your judgments attitudes about paying the price for other people's sin. It should help you see the real Jesus, the real Messiah a little bit. Look at John 18 and 19 for that one. Number two, he recognized government as an imperfect tool for justice and organization. He didn't agree with any of the parties, because I don't think there was anything to do about Rome. Just accept it. Work within it. Love people. Luke 20 is where to go for that one. It's, in studying all of this, it struck me just how little Jesus speaks of Rome when it's all anyone else could think about or talk about ever. He so rarely talks about it. There are little moments, he does, but overall he doesn't condemn them like everyone seems to want to. He just recognizes it as an imperfect tool for justice and organization. When you read back through the Gospels, knowing this, you see things a little bit differently. And number three, he resisted power, but used attention. Jesus resisted power. In one place, they tried to make him, force him to be their king. He resisted. He actually slipped out of that crowd without anyone noticing somehow. (laughs) He resisted power, but used attention. And I believe that was to show that it's not power we need to change the world, but love. Sacrificial love, like he modeled for us. Palm Sunday was a political move. 
We celebrate it as this beautiful religious thing that happens before Easter, and we talk about how people turned on him, but they turned on him because it was a, reli- a, a political move, not a religious one. Coming into town the way that he did was what most kings did when they just conquered something. It was a political move, and every single person waving the palms at him would have known that. They expected him to ride straight to the Roman governor's mansion and overthrow it violently. But what did he do? He rode to the temple. He threw over some tables, and then he went and prayed in a garden. Everybody's so confused. They thought he was going to liberate them, take down Rome. But he went to the temple instead, proving that this wasn't political. This was spiritual, but they, they just, they couldn't see it. He used the attention. He resisted power, even when it was thrust upon him, even when everybody was crying out for him to take it. He resisted. Jesus is not just a person, a God, a being. He is also an idea. The gospel, the good news is an idea. And it is both so simple and it will also take a lifetime to understand. It's both. Moments to accept the idea and a lifetime unpacking it. But the unpacking of it. It's not worth the argument in a world swallowed by darkness. Jesus didn't argue it. He presented it. He asked questions meant to make people think. He gave us lots to think about. But the higher goal for him was opening hearts to see God's love through him to the world, not shutting them down. He wasn't unkind to the religious leaders. He warned the people about them. He he didn't stomp all over them in his rightness. He just wanted them to see God's love. He wanted them to see what was right in front of them, that God was here now, that he was not only the Messiah, he was Emmanuel, which means God is with us. God with us. Not untouchable, in a temple behind curtains that only one person could enter one time a year when they were clean. But here, now, not just in first century Roman-controlled Jerusalem, but in 2020 America, too. He is here. Our job is actually very simple to understand, but tougher to live out. Love God. Love people. Be a citizen of heaven, walking on the earth, in the world, but not of it. To get the job done, you'll have to spend time in the Spirit, but you also have to go into the world. And to get the job done, you'll need spiritual disciplines and physical discipline. You'll need the Holy Spirit to empower you to be more relatable, more understandable, to weep with those who weep, to be more down to earth as you learn and grow spiritually at the same time. Some of us, we've been so spiritual for so long, only existing within the four walls of the church that we forget how to talk to the world. We forget what they're into, what they're thinking about and struggling with right now. We only see our world. We have blinders up to everything else. That wasn't Jesus. That's not the Jesus I see in the Gospels. He was with people. And he was never so spiritual that he couldn't provide wine at a wedding. He solved a very practical problem. He was never so spiritual that he couldn't hang out where the people were at parties. He didn't hide in the four walls of the temple. In fact, he was so spiritual that he could go to parties and love people without compromising himself. He didn't sin with them. He just loved them. That's how spiritual he was. Some of us have been confusing spirituality with legalism, with adhering to rules and regulations 
that were never meant for that. And we apply them and beat other people up with them. If that's you today, God's convicting you of that. The only thing to do is repent. Just say sorry. Put the walls back down. Stop. It's really that simple. Remembering that Jesus loved God, but he also loved people in practical, everyday ways. He loves people. Some of us, though, are the opposite. We make fun of the spiritual. We scoff at it. That's not real. Right? That's not what this is about. We latch on to the practical Jesus, the one that existed 2,000 years ago, but not today. The, the, the one that fed the 5,000 actual bread met their physical needs. But we forget that just after he fed the 5,000, he asked Peter to walk on water with him. <laughs> like, get out of the boat on water. It's the most impractical. <laughs> like, Jesus was not just physical. He was also spiritual. Jesus is a miracle-working God. He makes a way where there is no way. The Israelites walked on dry ground across a sea. It's impractical too. It is both. He can move mountains with just mustard seed-sized faith. And if that's you today, you've been focusing on the physical, just open yourself up again. It's that simple. Just allow the Holy Spirit to dream big dreams within you, to whisper His Spirit into you. And remember that Jesus not only loves people, He loved the Father. He listened intently to His voice, even when it didn't seem to make much rational or natural sense. He submitted. He listened. He trusted that His spiritual, heavenly Father knew more about this physical life than he did. You, follower of Jesus, Christian, you have that DNA within you. Jesus dwells within you. When you accepted him, you took on his DNA, his spirit. You have it within you. He gave it to you. There's nothing to strive for or, or to be or not be. Just tap into him. Be you, physical you, with his spiritual spirit. Jesus came to give us the message that God is here. He's here. He's not trying to pull us up to him. Someday he will, but today is not that day. Today he is here. He's always been here. What if we decide to be here too?
from the inside out. Sometimes I walk into worship and I'm bawling my eyes out by the end and I can't even articulate what God just healed. I just know that he did something. He wants to heal you from the inside out. From the spiritual place deep down in your soul that you didn't even know you were repressing, pushing down, pretending wasn't there. Open it to God today. He can be trusted with it because there is so much grace in His love. So much grace. His love is patient and kind. Doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it isn't proud or rude or self seeking. It's not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrong. He just loves you. His love is so big, He is smiling on you today. When you show up in His presence, He smiles. He loves you, just wants to be there for you to listen when you speak to occasionally talk back put you back on the right path, the right track heal your soul give you a purpose a plan for your life give you mission you don't have to leave here broken tired hurting today because Jesus came on a cross a physical actual cross 2,000 years ago and died for your sins today that is miraculous it is almost unbelievable but it's true because your creator God is that good he is real he is good and he loves you so much he sent his son to take the punishment for your sin and and selfishness and shame and to replace it with love. Just love. So much love. Accept that truth today. That's all you have to do. Accept it. Whether you've been a Christian for 20 years or you're still not so sure, just accept his love for you. Just accept that God is smiling at you. That all you have to do is call on the name of Jesus to be saved with mustard seed-sized faith. You don't even have to have that much. Just believe. Jesus died for you. He can give you a fresh start today. And he loves you so much. today? Can we have met with God in a very spiritual moment and go back out into that physical world and love it? Just like you've been loved today. God sees you wholly, completely. He sees you. He loves you. And he's given you a mission. Go give it to the world. Go share that love with someone else. Help them see God is real, God is good, and he loves them so much. Father, we thank you. Thank you for this mission. Thank you for this series. Thank you for revealing so much of your truth. Truth that you unpacked 2,000 years ago, but it's still so true, so relevant, so impactful and powerful today. Help us unpack it every day to live our lives according to it to spend time with it worship in your presence talking to people about it to praise and thank you for what you've done but also learn about you help us to be the vibrant passionate selfless church you've called us to be and help us to go into the world change it with a message of the gospel. 
we thank you and praise you in Jesus' mighty, powerful, unmatched name. Amen. Amen. Go today joyful with that love in your heart. Will you do that for me? Okay. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash I am in. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links. 